from Kirkco Media. Doctor, doctor, you gotta help me see what's going on. Doctor, doctor, don't breathe, don't touch that doorknob, and certainly don't touch that friend. If you're a germaphobe like me, this is your show. Welcome to Medicine. We're still practicing the coronavirus edition. I'm Bill Curtis. If you've joined us here before, you've heard me introducing my co-host as the triple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, and critical care, my good friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. But wait, as of today, he's the quadruple board certified, earning the certification for stroke and neurocritical care. That's amazing. Congratulations, Steve. And I'm certifiable. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, we've all heard about this newfangled disease out of Wuhan, China, called the coronavirus. It's the one that the World Health Organization called a grave threat to the world. Well, Dr. Tabak and I have invited back an amazing doctor to set us straight on the subject, Dr. Suzanne Donovan. She's one of the most inspirational professionals that Steve and I have ever had the honor of having on our show. She is a renowned infectious disease specialist and infection control expert with Olive View UCLA Medical Center in Silmar, California. The last time Dr. Donovan was with us, she shared her experiences fighting Ebola outbreaks in the West African nation of Sierra Leone and her multi-decade efforts to control the AIDS crisis. If you want to be inspired by a true story of heroism, you owe it to yourself to go back to our fourth and fifth episode of Medicine We're Still Practicing. So who better to help us understand the realities and the rumors around coronavirus? Dr. Suzanne Donovan, welcome back. Thank you for the invite to come back and uh, talk about this new epidemic with, with all of you. Dr. Steve, tell us what we're really dealing with here. Coronavirus has been around, you know, for probably millions of years. I mean, it's nothing new. I mean, it's this small little RNA, you know, particle, uh, but it hasn't been as virulent as what we're seeing, I don't think, in, in the history of, certainly of man. But uh, best to talk about, you know, what this is, I think, is is our esteemed guest. You know, why now? Why this little virus that has sort of caused colds and, and, and flu-like symptoms, why now is it becoming so deadly? What's going on? I think we all need to remember that this is the third epidemic we've had related to a coronavirus. We had sars in uh, 2002-2003. The next decade, we had MERS, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, in around 2012. And now we have this novel coronavirus uh, in 2020, 2019, really, initially um, at least identified in, in China. So this is nothing new. And also, it's really important to remember that our ability to detect epidemics and to detect the, the, the origin of the epidemic has changed dramatically in the last 50 years with molecular technology. So we've just gotten better at testing for it? I think we've gotten better at early diagnosis of outbreaks. But, there, you know, you would know if there was a pandemic. That's uh, correct. And, you know, so that would not be any mystery. But is this not more virulent than SARS and MERS? Well... I think when we use the term virulent, we have to be very clear what we're talking about. Virulence refers to a disease and its ability to cause organ destruction or death to the host. The data that we have to date is that this is much less virulent than SARS and MERS. 
The other thing I, I think it's really important to say is there's a lot of talking heads out there on coronavirus. Some that are super smart, much smarter than, than I am. Um, maybe some that are a little less informed. And we know very little about this virus at this point. We don't know the attack rate. In other words, if we one of us had the virus in this room right now, how many individuals would be infected in the next two weeks? We don't really know that. The other thing we don't know is we don't know the case fatality rate. In other words, out of 10 people that have coronavirus, how many will go on to die or how many will end up have, having significant morbidity or disease from this, ending up in the ICU, ending up on a ventilator? We have none of this data coming out of China. All we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg are the deaths, and the people being hospitalized. We have no idea of the scope of the number of individuals that are infected that are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic because that data is not there. Seems like it's moving pretty quickly. Anytime you have what's called a novel or new virus or particularly a virus in a population that is naive or has no pre-existing immunity to it, we expect to see a lot of cases. I think our most important job, if you look at MERS and SARS or even Ebola in the U.S., is first to manage the anxiety and to manage the communication and the message about this virus. It's important that the, the public know about this virus so that everyone can be alerted to the dangers. I am just unfortunately on a soapbox about irresponsible reporting. And, and sensationalism, but I think it does a disservice to the population. The chair of public health at Hong Kong University said that he believes 60% of the world's population is at risk. How does he come to a statement like that? He's doing what's called, and I believe that article that he wrote it is not, not yet peer-reviewed. He's doing what is called mathematical out, uh, modeling of outbreaks. So there's something called r not. Uh, which is would be similar to the attack rate, which is the number of individuals that are going to be infected during the time the individual is infectious. So influenza would be around one and a half individuals, maybe two. To put it in perspective, measles would be around 15 to 17. Wow. I'm much more concerned about a measles case, which we had recently in Los Angeles, coming in than a case of coronavirus. What happens in China where there may not be the infection control practices in hospitals, there may not be access to the ability to do hand hygiene or respiratory hygiene. Um, the dynamics of transmission in China is going to be different than the dynamics of transmission in the U.S. So if you look at the handful of cases that we've had in the U.S., we're not seeing exponential growth here in the U.S. What's the difference between having the flu and having coronavirus? That's a great question. I would say for most individuals with a, a coronavirus, which we diagnose all the time in, in the U.S., it's like having a cold. You're more likely probably to feel a lot sicker with the flu than you would for the run-of-the-mill coronavirus. This particular coronavirus, we don't quite understand the dynamics of what it does in individuals yet. What we do know is that there appears to be a lower rate of complication in the pediatric population for reasons we don't understand. What we don't know is whether this coronavirus is going to be like SARS. During the SARS outbreak, the virus responsible for SARS was able to change its genetic code to become more virulent 
to actually become more dangerous to the human hosts. That did not happen during the MERS outbreak, and we don't know what's going to happen with this virus. And so I think we have more unanswered questions about both the clinical presentation of what happens when someone gets sick, but also the dynamics of the infection. Why do younger individuals not get as sick as older individuals? Is there anything, any symptom at all that you can tell us is unique to coronavirus that is different than the flu? I would say there is nothing that would distinguish a bad cold from someone with coronavirus. So how does a hospital know to test for coronavirus? So the current CDC criteria, because it's different in every country, the current criteria is that you have a combination of clinical symptoms and what we call epidemiologic risk factors. So epidemiologic risk factors is where have you been and what have you been doing? Stuff we ask our kids all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So where have you been? Have you been to China? And what part of China is number one? And number two, what symptoms are you having? And the symptoms they're looking for is a fever and respiratory symptoms. Important to remember. Respiratory meaning I'm coughing, I'm congested. Cough and short of breath or a fever. If you have a strong epidemiologic risk factor, you're from Wuhan or you're in a household with someone from Wuhan who is symptomatic and you have symptoms of a fever or a cough, that hospital ER should call public health and they will confirm that and then they will authorize screening. No doctor in the studio can order this test. It's not orderable through a private lab. This incubation period that they've been talking about, which is 2 to 14 days, basically any time during that time you can essentially be a carrier, right? You can give it to people? Let's talk about those terms. A carrier is different than someone who has mild symptoms versus someone who's symptomatic. There was one case reported out of Germany that was published as a letter in New England Journal of Medicine stating that an asymptomatic case transmitted the virus. However, it appeared the authors did not talk to the patient. Perfect. Yes. So they wrote up the communication, and it turned out the case was symptomatic. We know that there is what is called pre-prodromal shedding. So prodrome is, oh, I think I'm going to get sick. I feel like I'm coming down with something, and then the next day you're really sick. When you're in that prodrome, you can shed many different viruses. Pre-prodromal is before you even have that prodrome, you can shed a virus. But what is very important to remember is for most, the vast majority of infections, there is a very clear relationship between the amount of virus in your body and your symptoms. What that means is you're most likely to be infectious when you have symptoms. And the way you transmit coronavirus, the main way to transmit coronavirus, is by coughing and depositing droplets on you. You're three feet away from me, so I could infect you. If you're asymptomatic, the only way you can transmit that virus is by touching your mucous membranes and then touching a surface, and then you would touch it. So this is not a doorknob issue. This is, this is a very low-risk issue. We need to focus in on the symptomatic population. So does this live on surfaces at yes. all? Yes, it does. For how long? Well, I'm, I would love to find that out, right? So we're still getting environmental surface data, but we know in general... 
Coronaviruses are what are called envelope viruses, so they have a little protection around themselves. So they can persist on surfaces for even over a week, which is why it's very, very You're important. You're killing me, Suzanne. <laughs> In this country, we do not have ongoing coronavirus transmission. I see here where we live many students, many individuals wearing masks, and I'm wondering... The only reason to wear a mask is if you're having symptoms. Or if you're robbing a bank. Well, I think <laughs> that'll do it. But they're wearing a mask for self-protection. There is no reason to wear a mask in the absence of you having symptoms or you're going into a hospital and you're going to be seeing a patient. But only when you're working with a patient who exactly. has coronavirus. So exactly. we were not advocating, and you're not advocating, I'm sure, using a mask of any kind to be in the general population, whether you're on an airplane, whether you're having dinner in Chinatown. There's little reason to be doing that in this country. Well, there's two reasons not to do it. Number one, for what you just said, and number two, we now have an international shortage of both categories of masks. Right. I mean, it's a national security issue, is it not? If we're, if the media is propagating this this panic mentality, yes, you can certainly say that there's no reason for panic at this juncture, and yet the media is fanning the flames of panic because that was is what's going to get people to tune in to their show. But what they should be saying is just the opposite. Yes, it's dangerous, it's serious, but at this juncture, they should be saying there's no reason for alarm. I think it underscores something we talked about in our last show, is the grave importance of supporting our public health agencies, both here in this country and internationally. And I believe I mentioned in the last show that our current government cut back funding for both the CDC, which trickled down to cutbacks in the public health departments, who are the first responders to every epidemic. They also cut back funding for international laboratories that were scattered throughout the world, where the focus was on emerging infections. And I think instead of talking about, you know, concerns about getting on a bus or going into Chinatown or, or am I safe on my school campus, we really need to focus attention on supporting our public health agencies. Well, I'm going to want to talk about that a little more in a minute, uh, but we're going to take a quick break while I see what it takes to go live on the moon. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> doctor, doctor. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. Doctor, doctor. So it turns out that the moon has decided to quarantine Earth, and I can't go. Uh, but we're back. So, uh, Suzanne, the drastic measures that they've taken in China, such as empty businesses and schools and empty streets, have they had any substantial effect, and how, how would a strategy like that play out? That's a great question. I mean, I find it fascinating what they did because it's the largest quarantine of its kind ever in the history of epidemics. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data back on how successful it is, but we can extrapolate from other epidemics that when you have an epidemic, doing social isolation is very, very effective in stopping uh, the epidemic. And we did it in Sierra Leone. 
where we had social isolation. Um, and some social isolation occurs by default, where people get so afraid they just stay in their homes. Some is mandated by the government. Those large-scale quarantines can be very, very problematic. First of all, it's very difficult to quarantine that large of a population. And in fact, they announced the quarantine and millions of individuals left before that quarantine was implemented. So that was num problem number one. Problem number two is now you've quarantined the area and you can't get in necessary supplies, including medical. I think many individuals in public health hoped that what after happened with the last outbreak in China that spread to Hong Kong and then to Canada with SARS, that the public health response would be much stronger in China and there would be more transparency. I, I don't know that we're seeing the transparency that we need to get the data so that we can use it in other areas. Historically, we've seen far more deaths at least thus far, in the pandemics of the flu virus. And yet we don't socially isolate our flu victims. Why all of a sudden are we isolating all the coronavirus victims that we see? Are you talking about the U.S. response? Yes. I believe that response is based on a particular approach from our government and not the CDC. Can you expound on that a little bit? During the Ebola outbreak, you may remember there was a response by our current president, which is any healthcare provider who goes to work in Africa, I saved the tweet, should not be allowed to come back into the U.S., even though they were going. How helpful. <laughs> Since I was one of the healthcare workers, it, it was a little bit uh, disconcerting. Disconcerting is kind. I think. The public is very happy with that response. I think they're very happy with the response to not allow Chinese visitors into our country. Um, I think it's reassuring, uh, especially during an election year. It certainly makes public health job easier because there's fewer travelers coming in that may be at risk. I was a little bit surprised that uh, visitors from China residents, American citizens, were quarantined on military bases that were asymptomatic, as opposed to home isolation, which is what we did during the, uh, the Ebola quarantine You think period. it was more for PR? I, I do wonder. I do not believe that recommendation came from the CDC. Right. So how long does China remain a factor in this, Steve? I mean... How long before the idea that someone has been to China doesn't really matter, but when we're passing enough of this stuff around New Jersey? Well, I would think the dust has to settle. I mean, right now we're just sort of in, in the, kind of the, the beginning phase of this. Uh, if it all fizzles out and goes away, I think, you know, we have very short memories uh, relative to this when we're speaking about the general public anyway. So I think the dust has to settle. We have to see the magnitude of, of this issue and, and the intensity of this issue before we can say, all right, the, the, you know, we've turned the corner. I think that's such an excellent question because I think we're all focused on Wuhan. I'm actually more focused on China in general because I think, again, the data is limited. And we do know many individuals left that area and went to other areas of China. I think we would use the approach we used in, in other epidemics where we look for the disease to, to reach an epidemic level where there's ongoing transmission, which we have not seen 
really outside of China. Back in the category of allaying concerns, would it be safe to say for our listeners that those people who uh, thus far that are dying of the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, are people who are more elderly, more infirm, more immunocompromised, the typical death that you see from the influenza virus, the recent H1N1, you know, notwithstanding from a decade ago or less than that. 2009, yeah. But is it not safe to say that really those people who are most at risk are those people who are elderly, infirm, immunocompromised? um, Isn't it the same with the flu? It is, indeed, and that's the point. When you look at the millions of people that died during these pandemics, it wasn't necessarily that there was a high case fatality rate, that the number of people who got it, a large number died. It's just the number, the vast numbers of people that got infected, even if you had a case fatality rate of 2 to 3%. You still lost hundreds of millions of people. Because you had so many millions of individuals. And that is the concern with the coronavirus, not that it has a high case fatality rate, which at this point, it doesn't look like it does, but we are getting more data on this. But if you do end up with millions and millions of individuals infected, you are going to get a substantial number of individuals that will die. Right. It's just, just a numbers game. It's a numbers game. game. As opposed to the AIDS virus, where in its, in its day, yeah. it was like 100% case fatality. Everyone who got it eventually died. So, Suzanne, you've probably had to experience this before, the... Uh, dealing with a, a, a virus that is considered an enemy that doesn't respect borders or ideologies. Yes. Can you tell us a little about when it's worked, when you think that we've been cooperative as a world, and will it come together this time? I think the outbreak that we had in in Liberia and Sierra Leone um, in 2014, where WHO worked with non-governmental organizations and the CDC, I think it worked very well. It was late. It was a very late response, but it did come together. It did not happen in the most recent Ebola outbreak, where I think people had what we call outbreak fatigue. You know, it followed, you know, a two-year outbreak and... Really? Ah, the hell with it. Yeah, the hell with it. And it was in the DRC where, you know, most people don't even know where that is. Right. It wasn't global at that point. It wasn't global. It didn't it didn't really impact us in the same way where the entire Western Africa was impacted. My sense politically as being someone older is that we've we've shifted to a much more isolationist point of view, and I've always made an argument that we're one plane trip away from an outbreak. Uh, I know that's not going to make you feel good, but that's true. We can pull in our guns, build walls, shut our borders— but whatever is happening across the world is going to make its way here. So, Steve, let's talk about the doctor's perspective for a minute. Your operation at Burbank is called Consultants for Lung Diseases. Right. You see about how many flu victims per month? I would say we probably see 20 to 30 flu patients per month. So how are your procedures going to change due to the existence of the coronavirus? Basically, it's not. I mean, basically, that's what we've spoken of, is that the penetration of the coronavirus here in the States is very low, number one. So you're just going to assume that it's not? No. Number two, we're going to use the general measures that we use for any patient who might have a virus, and that is 
hand washing, certainly between every patient that we see. You're going to minimize any kind of respiratory contact. Try to isolate our patients, the patients who have a flu or we suspect might be sick enough and have a constellation of symptoms consistent with flu and now possibly coronavirus, are going to come through the back door to a special room in, in, in our office. They're not going to go to the general waiting room where I have patients who have severe COPD, emphysema, asthma, lung cancer. Why expose them to an infectious organism? They, these patients then come through the back door so that they're semi-isolated from the, the population in my waiting room. Unfortunately, they're all using the same elevator. Um, they're all using the same hallway, and so there is risk of contact. But in terms of just general measures, of, of general protective measures, is all that's recommended for the flu as well as for the coronavirus. Nothing needs to change. So just for a second, um, other than putting them in a Ziploc to prevent other people from catching the virus, how do your procedures change for how you treat that patient? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. If they have flu, we at least have some treatments for the flu virus. What, what are treatments for the there's, flu virus? There's antiviral medications that actually abbreviate the course of, of the illness and the intensity of the illness, mm. Tamiflu and, and things of that sort. That stuff works? It uh, actually does work. So let me ask both of you, if one of our listeners feels like crap today, yes. how should they proceed? You need to be more specific about that particular term. Uh, sneezing, it, coughing, congestion basic flu-like symptoms, but maybe not the muscle aches. They probably are going to need an over-the-counter decongestant and need to be washing their hands and avoiding contact with other individuals. You start spiking high fevers, I think it's incumbent upon that individual to call their physician because high fevers, sore throat, coughing, muscle aches, most likely not the coronavirus, most likely the flu, and probably should be started on Tamiflu and probably should have, you know, at least an assay to see whether or not they have influenza A. And obviously medications that can be given once you've had that test. So, Suzanne, as we progress over the next month or two, assuming that this 500 international cases turns into 50,000, mm -hmm. how would you suggest that doctors change their procedures if someone comes in with a high fever? So... I just want to address the procedures because in the hospitals are slightly different than in the clinic setting. Coronavirus, we're going to treat similar to any other novel respiratory virus. So instead of the standard precautions we would use for flu, we put them in a special room that is called a negative pressure room where the air pressure, instead of going out into the hallway, gets sucked to the outside so that when you open the door, you don't have contamination of the air in the hallway. Okay, so that's, that's protecting outside people. That's number one. Number two, instead of using the typical precautions we would use for a flu patient, because it is a novel virus, we're going to use the higher level of protection, which means we're going to put on a gown, gloves, and we're actually going to use a respirator. But let me interject. You're not going to be using those protective mechanisms unless you have an extremely high index of suspicion That's or That's an correct. actual diagnosis That's by, correct. by So what PCR. gives you as a doctor that suspicion that this guy has the coronavirus rather than the flu? So it's going back to the case definition. And the case definition is going to be dynamic, and that's released on a regular basis by the CDC. So the current case definition is you're a traveler from Wuhan within the last 14 days. You have a fever or respiratory symptoms, or you're a contact of someone who has coronavirus. You need all of those. Yes. Not just a fever, 
But it's a history that you it, have had it's contact. It's the epidemiology plus the symptoms. Exactly. You have do, to combine do you have, those. Do you have to have had contact with someone who was in China, or do you have to have contact with someone who had contact with someone? A contact with someone who is a suspected or confirmed case. You go through the necessary screening that you would do even if we weren't in the middle of an epidemic, which means you're going to do a flu swab. You may run a respiratory panel, as, as Steve mentioned. You don't go straight to coronavirus because, again, we don't have ongoing transmission of this infection. That may change in the future. The dynamics The future in a few weeks? Uh, the future in a month? Again, th- this is something we don't know the dynamics of this epidemic yet. As this epidemic goes on, we're going to have more information. For example, we know we're using an incubation period of 14 days, but the vast majority of cases occur within the first three to four. We now have data that there may be cases occurring 21 days after exposure. That's going to panic everyone. And I had someone post on social media that we're going to have to quarantine people up to 21 days. We don't do that. We don't use the outliers to make public health decisions. So there's a difference between a decision I make as a clinician, where if I was a private physician, I'd want to test all my patients. We had this with Zika. I got a gazillion phone calls about Zika, and can I get that Zika test? And I know we're not testing. I know I'm not at risk, but I still want the Zika test. You have to make public health decisions when you're dealing with an epidemic, even though the public want you to treat them as an individual. So the screening tests for right now, the criteria are going to be based on public health decisions, not on your private practitioner. And the greatest filter, as every medical student knows, is history. Right now, it's that history, contacts from China, and have you been with somebody who has been ill? You're looking for the high-tech solution, which we don't have yet? Well, no, I'm just looking to protect my friend, Dr. Steve, who works in a system that accepts a lot of people with high fevers. I'm not worried about protecting myself because healthcare professionals, if that's what you're worried about, you're in the wrong line of work. You're going to use general safety measures. We've always talked about you in the wrong line of work. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We're going to use general safety measures, but by and large, protecting the populace is going to come from getting a good history. You're not going to quarantine the entire world who has a fever. The public should not be panicking, I think is the main message, that we need to be vigilant, but there's no reason for panic. Well, not yet anyway. When when my kids were young, I always told them first rule of thumb, and they'd say it now as adults, don't panic. Suzanne, can you give our listeners a couple of go-forward thoughts that you can leave them with so that they can have a good sense of what's happening with this virus? What are the three points that we should know about it? I think when, when we reflect on the coronavirus outbreak, I think we need to remember we've been here before. We've experienced two prior coronavirus outbreaks, and we've learned a lot from those outbreaks. The hospital system in the U.S. has tremendously improved its infection control response. And there's some simple things people can do to protect themselves against coronavirus and flu viruses. You've already heard those. Wash your hands. Stay home if you're sick. When we're talking about hand washing, hand sanitizers effective for the flu? Because I've heard now that supposedly CDC says yes, no. And then what about hand sanitizers for coronavirus? And then we'll talk about general hand washing. Hand sanitizers can be used for coronavirus. Anything that has a high enough alcohol content will kill coronavirus. I think the problem when we talk about hand sanitizers is that's a big market, and you can have varying degrees of alcohol. Is Purell a hand sanitizer that works here? Yes. And the reason I like hand sanitizers 
is it's very convenient. You can carry a hand sanitizer with you. You frequently do not have access to soap and water um, in many places. So I, if you're traveling, bring a hand sanitizer with you. Is that effective against the flu as well? Yes, it is. Okay. But the other more important thing is, is more of a global approach is, is really supporting our public health system. The foundation of responding to any epidemic, or even better yet, preventing epidemics, is supporting the CDC, the WHO, and our local public health departments. So, Dr. Donovan, where should people go to get reliable information, other than the show, of course, going forward? The CDC has a fantastic site for novel coronavirus. And and in fact, just go to the site because you can pretty much learn about any recent outbreaks that are going on in the U.S. or internationally. But they have a really good site for the public that gives you up-to-date information. You can also go to the WHO site, which also gives you more of an international slant. But the CDC site for people in the U.S. is, is really fantastic resource. Dr. Steve, with all that Dr. Suzanne Donovan said about we really don't know everything about this virus yet, we really picked the right name for this show. (laughs) This is medicine. We're still practicing. Indeed we are. Every day. Dr. Suzanne Donovan, thank you so much for coming. And I'm sure either next time I sneeze or next time we get a chance to have you back here, we would be honored to have you come. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next time. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.